Travis Borsma helped start an iconic Oregon company, and the Dutch Bros co-founder is suddenly one of the state's wealthiest residents. But in recent months, Borsma's other passion, horse racing, is suddenly at the center of a political drama, and Borsma is threatening to lay off more than 200 workers if his plans aren't approved in Salem. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source Health Plans, for supporting the show. Up next, business reporters Jeff Manning and Mike Rockaway. We talked about Borsma's racetrack, gambling, and restaurant center called the Flying Lark, why tribal governments see it as a huge threat to their casinos, how Dutch Bros is faring on the markets a few months after it went public, and whether the racetrack controversy is a one-off or the first indicator of a new billionaire flexing his political muscle. Here's our conversation. Jeff Manning, Mike Rogway, thanks for coming on the show. Sure, Andrew. I'm glad to do it. Hey. So Jeff, Travis Borsma is suddenly one of Oregon's wealthiest residents, and it's a, a name that many people are just getting familiar with. The Dutch Bros co-founder has other ideas beyond, you know, the newest caffeine-infused <laughs> drinks, though. Um, can you tell us about his passion project, The Flying Lark? What is it, and how did this thing become a, a point of contention? Well, you know, he may be the last person in the, on the planet who is a huge horse racing enthusiast. Um, at a time when the sport is actually totally on its heels, um, when the Kentucky Derby is the only race that outsiders really care about, um, Travis wants, and he has, brought fairly big-time horse racing back to Oregon, which we have not had commercial racing since Portland Meadows shut down. Somehow he became a huge horse racing fan as a kid, and when he became wealthy as a coffee czar, he started renovating the, the county fair tra uh, horse track in his hometown of Grants Pass. And that has now been renamed Grants Pass Downs. And the Flying Lark is the uh, hospitality and entertainment center next door. So I was doing a little research because uh, the name Flying Lark is kind of unique, not something you hear every day, but it's an homage to a famous racehorse in Oregon, right? Apparently, the fl Flying Lark was the most successful racehorse to come out of Oregon and has been quite successful or was quite successful breeding afterwards. Uh, lots of flying lark offspring that have been successful as well, apparently. Okay. So he's got this idea. It sounds, you know, at first blush, like a pretty good idea for Josephine County for Grants Pass. Where did things go wrong? And what led uh, Travis to threaten to lay off hundreds of people before really opening his doors? Boy, this always was going to be a heavy lift to make it pencil out. Portland Meadows, right here in the metro area, couldn't make it fly. Grants Pass, uh, a tiny town, five hours from Portland. You know, where are they going to get their audience? He needed, obviously, another source of revenue. The Flying Lark is it. And the big revenue generator within the Flying Lark is not hamburgers and hot dogs. It's more than 200 gambling ter terminals that look a hell of a lot like slot machines. And that has led to the big political problem for Travis is the tribes 
hate this plan. They say it's illegal, violates the Constitution, violates their compact with the with the state government that casinos are only going to be on reservations. Okay, we'll get into that political controversy here in a minute. But Mike, let's turn to you. Um, you obviously have covered Travis and Dutch Bros, and it's kind of remarkable initial public offering and rise on the stock market. But can you just talk a little bit about economically from your business reporter hat? What would this type of facility mean for Josephine County? You know, it's uh, not got a lot of major employers, I don't imagine, but Dutch Bros is certainly one of them. Its headquarters are there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think Dutch Bros impact, you know, in terms of a corporate headquarters is pretty small but in terms of the the flying lark and you know talking about you know hundreds of employees there it could have a very significant impact you know what josephine county has what twenty seven thousand or something like that jobs total in the entire county Hmm. so this would be a major you know economic player there and you know to the extent that it could draw people from other parts of the state and as jeff says it's a little bit of a lift because it's you know, a small community surrounded by other small communities, that it's it's a little bit of a stretch. But the thing about having a really small base is that you can have a big impact with even a, a, a relatively modest increase. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it it has the potential, if it can pencil out, it has the potential to be a, a big, you know, have a big economic impact. So, Jeff, can you talk about why the tribes view this as a threat? You know, at face value, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's on I-5. It's, you know, 40 plus miles away, I guess, from Canyonville and the, the Calc Creek tribes facility there. But I mean, what, what's the, is it really about this one facility or is it like a larger issue? What's at the core here? I think they do see it as uh, the opening of a door that they want to definitely keep shut. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a really competitive situation. Not only are are tribes facing threats like this, uh, online gambling uh, has become a huge thing. Uh, you don't have to be in at Churchill Downs to bet anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, Churchill Downs is a really interesting example uh, of a started out as Churchill Downs, but the real company, the company that makes all the money in that organization is called Twin Spires. They're again, they're, they run a casino there on site in, in, uh, in Kentucky and they have on, an online presence. Mm-hmm. They make so much more money now with those casinos than they do racing horses. That is what Travis is trying to emulate. And, uh, uh, in fact, he was talking with Twin Spires for a while to, to partner, and that never turned out. But back to the tribes, you know, they're all competing with one another. They're all, you know, pushing hard, quietly or not, to get off-reservation casinos up and running. The Slitz tribe is, uh, they're going all out in the leg- legislative session to uh, get clearance to open a casino in Salem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the Cowlitz tribe with its huge new operation up in Ridgefield, uh, Washington. They don't need new competition. Um, their revenue is flat. It's a long way to Grand Ronde and Spirit Mountain. You know, I mean, it's uh, not something that you do on a whim. 
their locations are working against them and they, they don't need new competition, even if it is in grants fans. I'm curious about your thoughts here, because, you know, we've got only a handful of prominent billionaires in Oregon and you think of Phil Knight or, or Tim Boyle and, you know, they flex their muscles. It's typically around tax issues, I feel like, or issues that affect their bottom line or a lot of times issues that are central to the metro area, whether it's Tim Boyle talking about homelessness in recent years and what have you. But, you know, now we've got Borsma who is quite literally a, a new billionaire and it's an issue outside the metro area. I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting dynamic. I'm curious kind of your thoughts on that mike i totally agree uh i mean it's you know i I think boyle and and knight have had an enormous impact in the state because of their money and i think it's very interesting to consider how travis bersma might use his his money and wealth and this is the first sign we've had of it he's focused on this and just reported on on his you know political uh organization he's, he's funded so far so I think it's it's an open question. You know, the the other really wealthy person outside the metro area we had was Les Schwab, mm-hmm. and he always seemed to stay out of state politics, and his family did too. Uh, and now they've all left the state. It's clear that if he wants to, you know, in a state with unlimited campaign contributions, he could be a big player. But to my knowledge, he hasn't shown any broader interest in policy issues aside from those that directly affect you know his his gambling initiative jeff what are your what are your thoughts on that this dynamic i mean you've covered nike and its influence for decades he's the bro billionaire uh, i interviewed him the other day and uh, he had his baseball cap on backwards and uh, all this rock and roll paraphernalia behind him he had a big beatles poster on the wall musical instruments he's got uh, eclectic tastes and you know, <laughs> we've never talked taxes, We've, but I think he could probably give a rip. He's a f- fun guy, and he, he likes to have fun, and he loves horse racing. He, I think he loves betting. And uh, Mike's right. He is getting involved in politics. He's funded this thing called the Horse Pack. Uh, horse stands for something, but I can't remember what it is. <laughs> He's put a hundred grand into this thing, and uh, it is starting to sprinkle money all over Salem. What are they sprinkling money in so far? They want the flying lark to survive, yeah. and they want their track to survive. And uh, the big hullabaloo of the last couple of weeks, Travis has gone public and said, "I want and I need the Oregon Racing Commission to approve this thing." They led me to believe they would approve it. And I've spent $50 million on this project. Uh, and I took their word. I took them at their word. I thought I was negotiating in good faith. And uh, I'm going to shut the whole thing down unless the state comes around. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk more with Jeff Manning and Mike Rogaway. Mike, last year we talked about Dutch Bros and its IPO and... Um, you know, as Jeff mentioned, uh, uh, Travis is kind of a, a unique guy. I think he wore a Rage Against the Machine shirt uh, on the day of the yes. stock debut. Um, how have things gone since then? Can you chart the arc of this company and how it's how it's being received nationally? Yeah, well, they IPO'd, what was it, September? Might have been August. They, they went out at $23 a share. And by October, the stock was at $80 a share. 
you know, I, I think Dutch Bros has some some cause to be unhappy with their investment bankers because clearly they mispriced the IPO. <laughs> they could have raised a lot more money or sold a lot fewer shares uh, and kept more, you know, kept more of the company control because Wall Street was much more excited uh, about Dutch Bros than the investment banks expected. However, uh, Wall Street is still somewhat uncertain about what to make of Dutch Bros. You know, the stock was up north of 80 in October. Now it's at 45. That's still double its IPO price. That's terrific uh, in three or four months. Right. But it does reflect a lot of volatility and a degree of uncertainty. On a given day, you'll see Dutch Bros stock rise or fall by 8%, which is a, a lot for a, an individual company without any news coming out. The The issue is that investors are trying to parse out. They really like they really like Dutch Bros business model. You know, they, they don't have to lease expensive spaces, prime real estate. It's just these kiosks, these mm-hmm. drive-through kiosks. Operating costs are really low. They really like, you know, how enthusiastic the customers are and the distributed nature of the business model uh, that, you know, you think, oh, a coffee, a coffee shack, everyone's lining up at, at you know, 7, 7.30 in the morning to get their coffee. But actually, morning's the slowest time for Dutch Bros. They do more sales at midday in the afternoon. Um, you know, their lunch crowd, their after-school crowd are huge. And hot coffee is only like 16% of their sales. They 26% of their sales are their, their Blue Rebel energy drinks. That's a, a brand that um, that that's a Dutch Bros proprietary brand. They, they control that. So there's a lot of value coming out of that. But what investors are trying to parse out is Dutch Bros wants to get to 4,000 shops. They were at about 530 at the end of last year. Is that realistic? And how long would it take to, them to get there? So here's here's one way to think about it. Uh, Dutch Bros has 153 shops in Oregon. That's the most they've got. That's one for every 28,000 residents. If it could achieve the same ratio across the country, it would have more than 12,000 shops. So... That suggests the 4,000 number might be very doable, Yeah, but it's a question of how long it's going to take them to get there and how much they're going to have to spend to do it. And that's what investors are trying to parse out right now. And that's why the stock is is sort of moving all over, is how quickly it's it's going to go that way. Investors you know, are always discounting things based on the time value of money. You know, Money today is worth more than money in the future. Money mm-hmm. a year from now is worth money more than three years from now. So... They're trying to t- parse out how long it's going to take Dutch Bros to, to get there. Okay, just think of two things, though. One, go through Portland and go to all the Starbucks locations that it used to have, which are now empty storefronts. They are, they're, they're downsizing their regional presence in a significant way. I don't know what that means for Dutch Brothers because when the, another little bit of anecdotal information I live out in the west side suburbs. There is a Dutch Brothers on Hall Boulevard near Washington Square Mall. They have so much business routinely. They have cars lined up through the drive-thru going out on the hall, creating an incredible traffic hazard. And I can't believe the cops let them continue to do this. But it's, it's uh, you know, something that you want to avoid. But uh in your car, but people want their white zombie mochas and they want them now. Yeah. As we know, (laughs) Oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, it's, it's just, it's difficult to describe the enthusiasm to overstate the enthusiasm customers have and their willingness to wait in line in their car for it, for these drinks. Uh, And, 
you know, Dutch Bros has had a lot of success in replicating this in new markets. You know, when they come in, they're not spending a ton on advertising. A lot of it is word of mouth, social media. You know, people get excited about it. And once they get there and have their have their drink uh, with the outrageous name, uh, they're hooked. Yeah, as we've kind of discussed on a previous episode and, you know, as I've talked about, you know, since I started this show, I mean, I'm I'm a Rogue Valley kid and um, <laughs> I'm, a, you know, how old am I? God, I'm going to be yeah, I'm going to be 39. But uh, I mean, th- th- my youth has kind of tracked with the rise of this company. So it's it's not a surprise to me, but uh, it, it, it's interesting to, to watch it spread. Before we got on the show here, I was looking up the Flying Lark, uh, checking out their Instagram and their web page and, and all that, Jeff. I mean, it, it's it's a a very stylish brand, right? I mean, they're they're really going all in on this. Um, it's they've got care packages that you can order of, uh, you know, that are branded local gifts and whatnot with a kind of a funky F that's clearly going to be their signature look. Um, they're hiring. Um, you can fill out an application on their webpage. I thought that was striking, given. Uh, given the news you reported uh, last week, Jeff. So, I mean, this is, uh, it's really an all-in enterprise, it appears. Well, as Mike said, um, 200 plus employees is a big deal in Josephine County. And uh, uh, it's interesting that they're still hiring, that they're saying they're still hiring on their website when they've also filed a notice with the state that uh, they're going to start laying people off on February 28th if they don't get what they want. And by the way, just yesterday, I got actually this morning, I got an email from the Oregon Racing Commission with the the announcement of the January meeting. And on that agenda is uh, Brands Pass Downs. And so we they've they've delayed holding this meeting for a couple months, and uh, mainly because the governor has been telling them, uh, let's. Let's slow walk this whole thing until we consult with the tribes and get a DOJ opinion. Uh, and I mean, that tells you something about the Oregon Racing Commission that they were going to approve this without it, without even going to their lawyer and seeing if it was legal. Um, uh, but in January, it may happen and we will see. We should note that Oregon Racing Commission meeting is Thursday, January 20th. So I, we talked a bit earlier about the Portland Meadows, Jeff. I mean, obviously, they existed for decades. I mean, how how were they able to have their facility with the tribal issue that we're talking that we've talked about throughout this episode? Um, it has to do with the, the with history and the political clout that the horse racing industry had way back when okay. when it was like up there with boxing as the most popular sport in the country the sea biscuit era they got this paramutual exception to the ban on gambling and that has survived to this day if you can prove that you're betting on horses and and you are next door or affiliated with a track mm-hmm. you could gamble uh, Portland Meadows had a bunch of these slot machines that supposedly are based on historical horse racing. And, and you know, that is an ongoing debate whether that is real or not. But for now, they're legal in most, in many states. And uh, those are the kinds of machines that Travis is putting in in the Flying Lark. And, you know, it's, uh, 
the definition of what makes a historic horse racing machine versus a slot machine totally arcane and tough for the outsider to understand. But uh, for now, in states that allow gambling and and that horse racing exemption, they're legal. And at least that's what Travis maintains. So obviously, the Oregon lottery is a huge source of revenue for the state, um, a state that doesn't have a sales tax and that we've you know talked about uh, just revenue being an issue <laughs> for uh, decades because of you know Oregon's unique property taxes and the lack of a, a sales tax and what have you. But I mean, the tribes don't get a cut of that, right? Of the lottery money, or do they? No. Yeah. Um, and now in the last few years, you know, if I want to wager, which would be a dumb wager, but if I want to wager on the Blazers uh, on their current brutal East Coast road trip, I can do that from my smartphone. Um, the the you tribes. Can. Well, you, you you could anyway, but you can now through the Oregon Lottery scoreboard. Right. Uh, sports app. Uh, so, I mean, that's another form of competition for the existing yeah. tribal casinos. And how do they feel about that? The tribes, yeah, they hate it. They absolutely despise it. And that's that's why they went to the legislature last session and they wanted a task force formed to do another big look at gambling. With the onset of digital betting, uh, it's changed the landscape totally. You can do it from your couch now as opposed to, you know, driving out to Lincoln City or Grand Run. And uh, that is an existential threat to the tribal casinos. And so they proposed a slowdown. Let's put all new gambling on hold and we will form this high level task force and we'll figure out where we're going. They were shut down. The governor was lukewarm to downright cold to it and it didn't go anywhere. And uh, that, that shocked a lot of people because the tribes have a lot of clout in Salem. And uh, so Kate Brown is her, I don't know what her position is. Right. First, she was deferring to the Oregon Racing Commission saying, hey, it's inappropriate for me to get involved. Then she said, well, I'm not going to get involved, but uh, Oregon Racing Commission, you have to, I'm expecting you to consult with the tribes and the DOJ. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the Oregon Racing Commission postpones its meeting at which it's going to supposedly approve or not approve the whole thing and uh so it's a very uh interesting political dynamic going on and i don't pretend to know what what's really going on it's the um the man behind the curtain i don't know who the man i guess travis bjorsma is the man behind the curtain right now anything else from your conversation jeff that um just jumped out to you about about travis and his interests as Justin Martin, the lobbyist for the Grand Ron tribe, said in that story, uh, Travis is getting bad advice. He should never have invested $50 million before he had approval. Why did he do that? On the other hand, from Travis's point of view, he's this apolitical coffee guy who loves rock and roll, and uh, he's not a political junkie, and he feels like he was misled. And... Mm-hmm that it was a done deal slam dunk that he that they okayed it at portland meadows why wouldn't they let him do it that i don't blame him for feeling the way he does mike is there any other piece of this saga or just about this uh 
this company that that you're interested in tracking here in 2022? It's place in the Oregon landscape as a business has yet to sort of play out. I, I think it's it's very intriguing. The Oregon Business Summit in December was hosted, forgive me, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Joff Ricky, um, who was formerly president of uh, Stumptown Coffee and is now CEO of Dutch Bro. Well, Joff was the host of the Oregon Business Summit hmm. and was the face of it, you know, the one on stage with the governor and and Senators Wyden and Merkley, he's, you know, clearly open to playing a role in, you know, Oregon's business community. And that's something that other big Oregon companies like Intel and Nike aren't really doing anymore, or at least not publicly. That may change with Intel's new CEO. But for the most part, the business community has been led by smaller businesses and it will be interesting if Dutch Bros sees itself as, you know, the big player that it actually is and tries to take a role in shaping or- Oregon's business climate. Uh, and also, if its headquarters stay in Grants Pass, I, I asked them once about that. And they say, well, always, and the, their answer was, we'll always have a big presence in Grants Pass. Hmm. But they didn't say that their headquarters would stay there. You know, Les Schwab moved their headquarters out of Prineville oh, 12 years ago now. Uh, maybe 15 years ago now, uh, right after Les Schwab himself died, they moved the headquarters to Bend. Now, you know, it's not very far away, but it did make a, a difference in Prineville and kind of makes a difference in Bend. And so it'd be interesting if at some point Grants Pass is just too remote. And if that happens, do they choose somewhere else in Oregon or somewhere else altogether? Travis maintains voting control of the company. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit harder for Wall Street to bigfoot them and say, "Oh, you know, you need to you need to be behaving like a different company or doing things differently." But at some point, you know, if if it feels too remote to be running a very large company, then perhaps there'd be some pressure to move. I don't get the sense that's imminent, but I also, when I asked them directly, they didn't say, "No, we're not <laughs> going to do that." Um, and Jeff, I guess what what do we know about just the fate of the flying lark? And it's um, you know it's not just the gaming centers, but it obviously it's very tied to the the horse re- racing piece. But you know, again, you go on their social media; the building exists. There's a fancy sign. You know, it's right there, pretty close to the Rogue River. What is the fate of this place if uh, if the state says? no dice the races can't go on and um there's no gambling allowed here i don't know what they're going to do if they don't get approval i I guess it becomes a restaurant but uh you know i don't think that the oregon racing commission is you know it's not exactly the sec when it comes to regulatory clout Mm -hmm. it's uh it loves the sport it exists because of the sport and to serve the sport and right now that means grants pass downs well, it's a fascinating story about, you know, one of the state's wealthiest residents and, you know, a rural county and the tribes. And uh, there's, you know, a governor who's not going to be in office much longer. And it's just a very uh, interesting story. That's a good point you make about the governor. I think that she has been so busy with the with the virus. Uh, I just think that she didn't. Have, she felt like that was the last thing she wanted to get involved in. I think Kotech has come out very lukewarm about 
expanded gambling. I don't know where the other candidates are, but that, that definitely is going to probably still be on the agenda when they take office. Lots of intrigue, very fascinating story. Um, and uh, thanks so much to you both for talking about it. Rock on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Jeff's story about the racetrack drama in the episode notes. I also shared my conversation with Mike from last year about Dutch Bros and its enormous IPO. Check it out if you missed it. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the program and tell a friend. Help spread the word. But the best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. And if you're interested in knowing more about companies like Dutch Bros, quirky Oregon businesses with a devoted following, check out our new website, hereisoregon.com. Until next time.